In hindsight, I realized that cruising was not the best foot forward that you can put as an argument for the acceptance by heterosexual people of, of the gay lifestyle. It was never meant to be emblematic of anyone's lifestyle, but it did exist. And to me, it was a background for a murder mystery, period. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. <laughs> everybody it's time for another one fucking hour i'm evan husney joined of course uh by my usual co-host to my left tom fitzgerald tom how was the birthday week it was uh kind of wolumpum sometimes <laughs> salamini and with a lot of moment <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of, oh my god and of course uh to my right uh mr marcus herring marcus what's up guys I'm broadcasting from a, uh, a undisclosed location this week. Yeah. In Kandahar, right? Yeah, uh, I can't disclose. <laughs> it's like every other week, a new spot for you. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, everybody, thanks for tuning in last week to Tom's Birthday Spectacular. One fucking hour on Jerry Lewis's Cracking Up. We did it. It happened. If you haven't watched it, definitely get in the archives and check that out. But this fucking hour, taking a, a hard turn here to William Friedkin's 1980 film cruising all right guys i'm just going to get right to it and start that clock you ready yep. okay let's do it all right all right so uh just right off the top <clears throat> i'm a huge fan of this movie i i i really uh I had, a, I, had a, I had a blast watching it again and just soaking in the uh amazing details of this movie and um for those who haven't seen it, I mean, everybody should have seen it if they're watching our show. But uh, Al Pacino plays a cop named Steve Burns. Guys, I don't see Pacino as a Steve, really. Do you in this? Hmm. <laughs> Not so much. Well, every, time like, <laughs> every time they're like, hey, Steve, it's just like, I don't know. He's more of like a Joel. <laughs> It'd be um, like, like Al Pacino as Josh. Yeah, you know. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's a good um, point. It's, yeah. Every name works for him. He, Steve does not work for Pacino. But anyway, uh, he sent undercover to solve a series of deaths uh, in the gay leather bar scene of uh, New York City's uh, meatpacking district, as well as the areas, uh, areas in Central Park, uh, one infamously called the Ramble, uh, and the pier alongside the West Side Highway. You get to see Christopher Street, Greenwich Village. These are all the authentic locations that would be true uh, to that community. Um, but like all deep cover flicks, man, the experience of being undercover like that takes a massive toll on him. And Steve uh, is getting closer to finding the killer, um, but we're left with a lot of ambiguity as to who the killer really is and, of course, how much it's affecting uh, Pacino, uh, his own sense of identity. So, I mean, that's the film, man. But one thing I wanted to say, kicking it all off, is talking about uh, maybe the most un overlooked detail about Friedkin, uh, about how amazing of a filmmaker he really is, because when, he fi when he's firing on all cylinders, uh, he is like a method director, you know, bringing that heavy research uh, into a film. Tom, you and I were talking about this, that his documentary background, I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he did get his start with documentaries, and I don't think it was just a, like a stepping stone career move. It, like, I think he really uh, felt like really at home with making docs. And so it's interesting. And then, and, and let's just say that his first big film, uh, you know, a French connection is a very verite kind of thing. You know, it's just like no sets, you know, all just like, it almost looks like stolen shots, <laughs> you know, without permits, you know, I don't know. And, um, and that added this like super gritty edge, even beyond like a midnight cowboy or something. So that has a, a sheen of, um, of uh, you know of, of a doc quality uh now with the exorcist though uh things things took a turn he, you know well uh, they became phantasmagorical but um right yeah he has he has a foot in docs which might surprise people or, or at least they might not have considered it that much i think he got a guy off a of death row with one of his documentaries if i remember correctly like he he that's where he came from and paul, he also yeah yeah, yeah paul crump i think um, something like that ahead. that's right that's right right and uh but one thing that he does in going into any movie is he immerses himself 
with the real characters, the experts, or the mm -hmm. world that he's making a film about. You know, he's always striving for that authenticity. Like you said, French Connection has that uh, yeah. through and throughout. I mean, you know, he spent so much time immer immersing himself with uh, the, the real New York cops to get everything right. Um, and The Exorcist, of course, which we'll get to, has some very authentic scenes as well, outside of the more, you know, heightened crazy you know horrific right. moments sure. and fucking to live and die in la man shows audiences how to accurately counterfeit money you know so he he he, he has a habit of doing this which is which is great but what yeah. what what people may not realize about cruising is that it has not only a link to the exorcist but it's, it's rooted in, in 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 a true story that it was inspired from um and this is something you guys both were hip to knowing this before right yeah absolutely it, it's it uh, chills me Whenever I think of it, <laughs> yeah, the uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, the incredible coincidence of it all—it it is such a crazy coincidence. This could be a movie in and of itself. But for those that don't know, um, in The Exorcist, there is a sequence where uh, Reagan, uh, the you know the, the 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 girl who is possessed, um, Linda she Blair, is, yeah. yeah, Linda Blair. She's going under a series of medical exams, um, and and Paul Bateson. Uh, played the radiologist in the film. He's a non-actor. He's a real radiologist in real life, and that scene, of course, is lauded for its you know medical accuracy. You know, like it, you know, well, at, like at its time. Hey, can I jump in? Sure. That's a very cinema verite moment too. Exactly. You know, like, and that chilled people. Not to totally sidetrack you, but just tiny little footnote is um, many people found that scene as upsetting as the rest of the film, the more phantasmic you know kind of stuff, because it's so down and dirty and just like like slow real time like inserting the needle to extract you know this you know from the spine the spinal tap and yeah. uh and i would agree that's a that's a pretty unfun scene to watch yeah. in, in, a, scary, in a film with lots of movies right yeah it's right yeah so people have one yeah. but it's fl it's flat as a pancake as far as a realistic depiction you know so anyway uh -huh. so who who's there yeah <laughs> so right technician. so right exactly so freaking you know for authenticity's sake cast a real radiologist you know for that scene right <clears throat> you know, probably you know, thinking nothing of it, but you know, his name is Paul Bateson. So years after Exorcist, he goes through some dark times. Okay, he has major struggles with alcoholism. He loses the job at the hospital or medical facility, flat broke, and um, he, uh, you know, then becomes uh, part of the of the leather bar scene. So he's part of that. And one night, he meets a variety film journalist named Addison Verrill at one of these clubs, they spend a night together. One thing leads to the next where um, Paul just fucking, I don't know, in a moment of desperation to try and rob this guy, whacks him over the head with a frying pan and murders him for, 50, for his $53 that he has or whatever. So super dark. Um, and uh, one thing leads to the next where uh, the coincidentally, the uh, victim's best friend was a village voice uh, writer. Okay, who would later, when Cruising came out, lead the you know charge against the film and lead all the protests against the movie, which oh is God. another bizarre connection. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so friend of the victim, Village Voice, uh, 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 a journalist, he starts writing about the case, saying that um, uh, this must have been a you know psychopath who hated hated uh, gay people who committed this crime. One thing leads to the next. Paul contacts Village Voice and says you know, anonymously, you know, like the Zodiac Killer or something, saying, I'm not a psychopath and I don't hate gay people. And that started some bizarre correspondence between the two. Um, and then eventually, long story short, Paul gets caught with this murder and uh, he's able to get a 20-year, I think 20 years plea bargain situation if he cops to these other murders that were happening in the gay community. So then William Friedkin reads this article and is like, oh, my God, my fucking radiologist from The Exorcist is a killer. Right, right. I got to go. Well, of course, what is, I got to go visit him in uh, prison. You know, so he goes to right. talk to him. It's like you were saying, he's very thorough and, you know, wants to hear like he doesn't want to just like hear about it. He wants to get to the source when he can. Exactly. And so they they discuss the case. And, and then um, even though he did get the plea bargain for the you know 20 years in, in, in prison um he told you know william freakin that he doesn't remember um killing the other people or that the police were trying to get him to take this fall for these other what, murders what he said was i think what he said was did you uh, freaking asked, did you kill those people and he said well he's like i remember the first one that's what he said wow. like i remember so that's 
That's what freak. That was Freakin's takeaway from it. I remember the first one, but yeah, <laughs> it did sound like that he was like copping to some so to some of the other murders, so the cops could just clear up the case and you know. Right. That happens all the time. Yeah. Just, and that's just kind of like case closers, you know. <clears throat> well, that's that becomes a theme in the movie a little bit too, um, which right. we'll get to. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, can so, I just yeah. uh, just ask you actually? Um, you know, in in uh, cruising. Uh, the film opens with um, the uh, people dredging out body parts out of like the East River, you know, in New right. York. Now, uh, uh, this guy, the actual killer, he, he did that too. He, he chopped up people's bodies too. So the whole thing was that, you know, there was loose evidence connecting him to these other murders, right? But there were body parts that, you know, were found in the, in the Hudson River, and some of them were in bags. This is what's really creepy. Some of them were in bags with labels that connected him to the facility he was working at while he acted in The Exorcist. Oh, boy. Oh. Okay. So he did. What you said earlier. Forensic files. Cue forensic files theme. Yeah. Right. But but no, he uh, you were saying that later on after the uh, period of his life, it was in The Exorcist. Uh, then he went out and started killing people. That I'm first not guy. exactly sure so, on the timeline, and it it's could not. Have gone, really... It could have gone that far back because that's right. actually I've heard that before too, yeah. and that's actually would creep me out. Like, uh, all right, all in a day's work, uh, Linda Blair, nice to meet you, and it's like, and then he goes cruising and he's, he's cutting people up. It's like that would be too weird because it's like the devil, evil possession, you know, like I know, like, you know, like some dummy might like, like you know, the all the bad vibes of the Exorcist, like grew on this guy when he was you know experienced the shoot you know whatever you know that'd yeah, be interesting to know though it's it just fascinating it's fascinating the connections you know so that's what kind of mm -hmm. sparks an idea for this movie of course there is a, a book source material as well but one of the other things that's fascinating too is that one of a a, a, a close friend to William Friedkin is a guy that I'm a big fan of his name is Randy Jurgensen okay and he's a was a <clears throat> real New York City cop who played a huge part in French Connection behind the scenes. Uh, just uh, He also plays the lead detective in Cruising, by the way. So he's actually, again, mm. casting a non-actor in that role. But anyway, so Randy Jurgensen right, right. is the guy who got Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, like, ready to play narcotics detectives. He showed them how to rough people up and to do that, those things. You know, Randy was in the back of the car when they're shooting the chase scene illegally so he could flash his badge if anything were to happen, right? So, um, but he... He's this guy has all these crazy stories from being on the force, and one of them, which he you know, told Pacino later on when he was cast in the film, he was telling about how one time he had to go undercover to investigate two guys who were posing as cops and harassing gay men in these, in these same communities, uh, like Joe Spinell's character that's in Cruising. Yeah. And there was also murders he was investigating too, but he, he went undercover, and he actually told Pacino and Friedkin that there were experiences where he was so lost in it that he even questioned his own sexuality at moments you know so things got real real for him and so you know that is just like so so combining those two real world things yes. is how you get this movie randy's right. the guy correct me if i'm wrong he's the guy who goes to the steak restaurant with al bundy yeah. in cruising right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. and also fun fact <laughs> yeah. too like the randy is the reason that friedkin gets the best locations like you know, he's the reason he gets the courtroom scenes. He's the reason he gets the police stations, and he's the fucking reason in this movie he got to shoot in a real ass morgue, which I think was unprecedented at the time. Because that morgue in the op in the op opening of the film that's that's a real yeah. fucking morgue. No, yeah, it, it, it wow. that one, that does feel incredibly authentic and quite gory. It reminds me almost of like the opening scene of an Italian uh, gut muncher. You know, like a hundred percent. Like you know what I mean? Like New York City, gory. Like, like New York Ripper. They, they, yeah, like the only like three minutes are actually in New York, and then you know, uh, <laughs> and, you know they shoot established shots, and then it's shot in like you know, um, Italian Italy. Uh, well, harkens, okay, the fact that they shot there harkens back to that we were saying about documentary stuff too, and how he's like got that nose for that um, documentary background and shooting in the actual like uh, uh, leather bars too, right? Right. But can I? I don't know where we're going, but like, uh, right. you just making me think now well we're talking well i guess we could start talking about the controversy uh the inherent controversy of cruising which is uh really just became the all the press about the film you know um you were saying like he wanted to shoot uh you know in everywhere real you know yeah and it, from my understanding maybe help me out here you're you're a cruising uh guide 
Uh, <laughs> um, tour guide? Anyway, tour guide, yeah. So he um, uh, freaking really, of course, wanted to shoot in Christopher Street, uh, you know, which was like, uh, you know, the big community. It's, it's where Stonewall is and everything on the West, uh, West Village in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, what I had read is that, uh, you know, the, 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 um, this was really the beginning of, uh, of gay activism, heavy duty stuff. Like, you know, years after Stonewall, but like organized, you know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. it got really heavy, you know, during uh, the 80s with AIDS. So, like, from what I understand, it's like Pacino and his uh, his apartment friend, you know, they're getting a coffee or something in a cafe, and right, in, right in the Castro, right there in the cut. Uh, and um, what the activists would do on the roofs, especially on the roofs, they would blow whistles. So if there was a scene outside of like a cafe or a dry cleaner or whatever on Christopher Street location... Uh, they couldn't shoot because it was a bombardment of horrible noise. And that's that sounds like that kind of cramped freaking style for authenticity. But he did get it. And I don't know the details, but from what I understand, it's almost like, uh, you know, waiting for the plane over all the planes overhead when you're shooting, you're in an airport. Like, mm-hmm. let's time this. We got three Holding minutes, sound, you know, yeah. like, another plane's coming. So I think something I don't know what happened. Maybe you can help me. Well, is like, let's like back they, up like a they would shoot bit. maybe like seven in the morning or something like that. Just um, yeah. the battle. This film had to even get made. Well, let's 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 uh, take a step back from that just real quick to to get to that point of the controversy, because one of the things with this movie um, is that the same Village Voice uh, journalist who was friends of the guy that the exorcist radiologist killed, um, right. he got a hold of the leaked script. Is actually how it started. Okay, and <clears throat> and he started reporting it in the Village Voice, saying that cruising promises to be the most oppressive, ugly, this is a quote, bigoted look at homosexuality ever presented on the screen. Friedkin is not only playing with a keg of dynamite, he's throwing a match to it. And uh, this uh, journalist, Bell, uh, urged his readers to disrupt the production, saying, I implore readers, gay, straight, liberal, radical, atheist, communist, or whatever, to give Friedkin and his production a terrible time if you spot them in your neighborhood. So, What were some other tactics uh, besides the whistles well, I mean, th- that was offhand. protests. Yeah, protests, disrupting any type of sound. Uh, I-, I know that there was, like, if there was a neighboring apartment, they would blare music. You know, anything they could do to try and disrupt the, the, the film. But I think it's important to explain a little bit of the context in that, you know, the backlash and the protests surrounding the film before it's even obviously made, it's just while it's being shot, is because, obviously, it was perceived to depict members of the gay community as monsters and killers, you know, perpetrating uh, further demonization. Uh, you know, this is, you know, the you know, AIDS crisis epidemic is, is, is just, you know, it's, it, we're kind of right on the edge of it, of it, you know, going into that. And activists were really also protesting against gay people being portrayed as victims in films. You know, I mean, we would see that, you know, we'd also see similar, similar heat for, you know, Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs got similar backlash you know, on yeah. transphobia and things like that. So that was what was sort of happening. Yeah. And this is the year after Harvey Milk got killed too, you know. Um, right. And there were like riots in San Francisco. And I think like it's also like uh, – like, uh, well, The riots were um, – sorry, if I, if I might. Just it's even worse. Like they didn't riot when Harvey Milk was uh, shot to death by another supervisor on the board. Um, it was his verdict, the killer, Dan White. It was like uh, three months in jail, you know? Right. I don't know if you guys, defense. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was, it, was a, it was a genuine outrage. I mean, not, it wasn't the killing, actually. It was just like, here you go. There's separate justice. Right, so, right. It's awful. I, but isn't it like true that there's like a flip side to it, too, where Freak can actually like uh, – like he, he had worked with like members of the leather community and like he he right. had he claims to have like gone to those bars been friends with them and like got con- and he he cast people as extras in the movie kind of at first was working with like you know the leather scene to kind of make this movie when the let's, word started getting out about it right so let's let let's let, let's talk about that yeah so he would he went to all these places of course what we were talking about his his knack for research and authenticity he goes to these places he wanted to shoot in the real clubs and wanted all the extras to be authentic. So he, he sure. I think that Randy Jurgensen, again, man, did a lot to, to make that happen. And so they, I think, rounded up like over a thousand extras from the gay leather bar scene to be in that movie. And when you really see all those movies, or, I'm sorry, all those scenes, he was telling them and directing them specifically, like, do what you normally do. You know, we want to make this exactly as authentic as possible. And, and Al Pacino is just sort of weaving in and out of, you know, Exactly what that scene would be, you know. So it's shot 
in that, and then they just kind of wait for a magical moment to happen with Pacino, you know, to kind of incorporate in the scene, which is really cool. And and famously, there's you know tons and tons of extra material of that because they shot so much of it to get those scenes right. But you get the um, right perfect moment, huh. right? And so so uh, so yes, but they they really had a lot of support from those direct communities, and it was just another subset of the gay community. Uh, that was protesting the film. And, and you asked about tactics. Last thing I'll say, pamphlets were distributed, rallies were held, streets were blocked, bottles and bricks were thrown, demonstrators were roughed up, and arrests were made. So this was like a real intense Yeah, it was thing. heavy yeah. shit. I think, yeah. Can I say, and I think it's good that you mentioned San Francisco's uh, intense uh, reaction to the Harvey Milk killer, because it's not dissimilar. Um, but if, if I might, I think... Because uh, actually, weirdly, I was researching something recently about the power, the early power in the late 70s of, of uh, gay activists, for lack of a better term. They really were getting organized. And one of the things they did was television. They actually really thought television was uh, maybe the biggest battlefront. And what I mean is um, they wanted it not to be, uh, you know, just campy and jokey gay characters, but like, you know, people or real people, you know. And so oh, it's man. about representation. Yeah. And, they, and they had a lot of sway. They actually... Um, you know, the, the studios, amazingly, um, did take notice. And, and there's like a Barney Miller. There's a Barney Miller with a gay couple. And they're, you know, treated like, you know, a person. <laughs> you know, they're not like uh, yeah. just a, a sideshow. And but and, and I'll shut it up. It's just, um, I think what's going on here, though, it's clear. You know, obviously, you guys, I'm sure, understand, too. It's like representation. It's like, okay, let's have gay people in films, too. But, like, can you just pump the brakes on the really crazy extreme parts of our community over here that, that could easily be demonized because um, it looks like, well, shoot, one day they're just going to fucking kill each other, all these leather boys, you know, like, because there's so much, like, um, violence play, you know, and so I think that's what was offensive, not like, um, so, but the leather boys were maybe more ambivalent about representation, um, you know, it's, so it's, it's like, uh, it's a just, they were saying it's, activists were saying it was a distortion they're like, you know, gay people, like, you know, fisting and like, you know, leather and punching each other in the face and stuff. You know, and it's like, whoa, like, like there, there's, and actually I will defend and then I'll shut up. It's, I think the character of um, whatever his name is, the Teddy. apartment friend. Yeah. What is it? Teddy. What is it? Teddy. Yeah, the, like I was, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to see where um, he is a grounded gay person for lack of a better term. And he's like living a life of a regular human being. And he's not going crazy in this broad way where one can represent, you know, where one could um, misidentify yeah. uh, what gay people are like. He's just like you and me, you know. So I thought that was actually pretty uh, cool and balanced oh, freaking, yeah. for whatever yeah. it's worth. Because and then, well, we know where that goes, by the way, and it makes we'll it get more to that. painful. But yeah, and we will. Yeah. But like Marcus I think, has got um, something, though. So Marcus. Yeah. So I'm done. Just it's representation. Oh. Yeah. No, I, I think I just to. Uh, uh, piggyback on that, I do see uh, that he tried to kind of balance it out a little bit by including Teddy, and then there's another guy, the guy who gets killed um, before he goes to the nudie booth, the 16 millimeter porn theater. He he, uh, that guy like you know has a normal kind of job, and he seems like a normal, regular kind of everyday guy. So there is the, there's an attempt to balance it, and there is that sort of thing. Like I don't know if it's actually all that good that like that it's it made for a lot of good movies but there's a there's a little bit of kink shaming with like leather and s&m and stuff that like they all there always is the serial killer in a lot of movies has like an s&m kind of uh yeah thing and there's always like a little bit of a uh, insinuation that that like the play can go too far or whatever so that's that, what i was does, saying yeah yeah like, yeah. like it doesn't look like they're about to kill each other anyway like you know <laughs> right, if people right. are dumb and they don't know what's going on they're just seeing it from the outside there's right, a panic right. yeah an epidemic of, of yeah. that yeah a little yeah, bit yeah. of like uh, hysteria in like S and M too, not just like in gay, but also like in you know, and S and M can be like scary or like you know, harming, harmful or whatever too. Um, there's a little bit of that uh, hysteria built in there too. Sure. Uh, I think I think what I was going to mention was the, um, you were talking about how there are all the attempts to kind of uh, sort like interrupt the production and just how the numerous ways that that I think. I think you can see the ways that it's impacted. We'll get into some more than down the road, but I think one of the major ways it's impacted is in the uh, the ADR in the movie, which like jumped out at me. The very first lines 
when you're one on this rewatch, I was like, gosh, it, this movie always does sound really weird. And it's, you know, it's because all the, the additional, a lot of the times additional dialogues recorded later. And I was like, what's going on here? This isn't like a, a Italian co-production or something. Is it, it might be it, because there's, there's like a hundred whistles. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Blowing. Exactly. Yeah. Cause the whistles outside said they go, they had to re-record the dialogue. Um, right. And it's it, disorienting. But it is disorienting, but it adds to the, the kind of creepy effect of the movie. I think. Absolutely. And like, and More on that later. Car, when the cops are in the car and Joe Spinell is talking, he is so close in the mic, it feels the mic's like really hot. And you can feel like it just feels like someone almost like whispering in your ear or something. It's we have a lot of more of that later. So. Yeah, definitely. This, it's, I think it's really interesting how like that kind of side accident, accidental discovery oh, yeah. led <clears throat> to like an, an additional creepy factor for the movie. Yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I got something on the ADR. I, 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 uh, an ADR theory I want to throw on you guys. Can we show a, a clip? Here. Uh, oh my God! We haven't shown a clip. Uh, l- let me just l- let's just put a bow on on, on the controversy of the film, uh, if I may. Um, just just talk a little bit about um, you know this movie, you know, has been sort of reevaluated since that time. Um, you know, there are people, critics, and you know, viewers, fans of this movie, you know, that that do feel that the depiction of gay people in the film is kind of remarkably sympathetic for it for its time period. You know, especially for a Hollywood for movie. Time. I mean, you really sure. look at you really look at a movie like Partners that comes out two years later. You know, with oh Ryan O'Neill. Boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, and sure. really, the only negative light that this movie really shines on yeah. any 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 community is uh, the police. You know, it's very critical of the police in the way it's depicted in this film. I mean, yeah. Joe J- Joe Spinell and his partner. You just mentioned how they. You know, he kind of. You know, if he's forcing, you know, uh, the, the two trans women into the patrol car and threatens, you know, threatens them if they don't perform sexual acts. I mean, that's horrible. The um, the the when they have the guy they think is the killer, they bring him in and say, hey, jack off in front of us. We're going to make sure you see if your scrotum floats, you know, and all it's like just horrible, horrible yeah. stuff. And um, but what really strikes me is that throughout this film, like. The, the people in the nightclub scene are the victims of this movie. You know, whether it is through the killer's knife or the harassment of the cops, like that's pretty level in the way it's depicted. And there's a great line that Pacino says in the film when he's talking to the captain, and he says, uh, uh, just, you know, very cold, he just says, I didn't come on this job to shit on, you know, some innocent gay guy, man, you know? And it's just like, that's a great, like, I'm so, like, that's great that that's in there, you know, even for the time period and what we're talking about. You mentioned Teddy. Teddy as a character is an amazingly grounded aspect to the whole thing. But what I think is this Mm -hmm. movie really does portray the leather bar community as an innocent community for the most part, you know, which I think is so conversed from what they thought, you know, this movie was. Being preyed upon. Well, it's, uh... Yeah, like the, the film is not a bunch of leather bar guys who, after the bar, go out and like stab people in the stomach. It all that that's not what the plot is, you know. Right. right. At the same time, it's complex because it it absolutely does exploit them for you know uh, the shock of like mainstream audience too. You know what I mean? Like it's so yeah. it is a double edged sword because it's definitely exploitation too. You know, but. I don't, know. I don't know. Is it? It's complex. I think. No, I don't know. Is I, it? I would agree <laughs> with. I agree with Marcus. I think it's. Look, it's it's a it's a hot, sexy, visually stimulating uh, environment. You know, yeah. he's right. It's like you know they're not they're not reading in the library. It's like uh, you know it's 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 a it's a grabby subject and and environment. You know, I and, would uh, push back only in saying that. I, I don't maybe think it's exploitation. exploitation. It's not. Exactly. It's not exploitation because that is, it is what you would see. I mean, that's it's lurid, but that's accurate to what is happening like this nothing is well, but the, the but the choice he made to to to, to focus on it um right. as, as a uh, as a visual feast and it's a gawky kind of thing you know that's marcus what did you say it's like um you know it's like a voyeuristic appeal of like middle america you know this film's playing like in you know a strip mall in peoria and it has an inherent uh exotica uh, yeah, there's uh, definitely some uh, there's definitely some yeah, othering, some otherness, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. Um, and it's lingering. It's not just like, well, they're all here. It's just like there's I long, think, long times. I don't think it's a problem. It's just I, um, I, I, the only thing I will say is that in the hands of any other director, at that time especially, it w- it it would have been astronomically worse. I think this is a very objective uh, treatment of this material. 
personally, I don't think it. I I actually don't think it crosses the line to being overly exploitive. That's just my personal opinion. To your point about another director, Friedkin does tell the story numerous times that uh, <laughs> yeah, Spielberg. It, was, it was originally offered to Spielberg, <laughs> the script. That's the movie that. I want to see. <laughs> Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. So, But, you know, the last thing I'll say about the controversy with Friedkin is that he does, you know, uh, nowadays when he talks about it, he does fully acknowledge that... Um, Cruising coming out at this at this time, you know, at the sensitive time for that community was not a good. It was not good timing, you know. And uh, he does look back on that as, um, you know, that that because they were already demonized, and and so he doesn't fault anyone uh, for uh, the reservation. Understands reaction, of course. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, can I say though? I think maybe to put a button on all this this part of our convo is, um, I think it's the case where. It's like, uh, God, I hate, you know, Life of Brian or something, you know, like, or, you know, like, have you seen it? No, I didn't see Life of Brian. I'm protesting. You know, it's like, or, you know, uh, Last Temptation of Christ. I hate this movie. No way. And it's like, did you see it? No. Everyone always says, I didn't actually see it. Why would I see that filth? And I think that um, it's one of those things where, like, it's in a context of the 70s. Because one thing that happened in the 70s, you know, all the floodgates opened up and, in a, you know, graphic representations of everything in the seventies. Right. And it included gay culture, but, but invariably gay people saw themselves on screen as psycho killers. And, uh, I think freebie and the bean from 1974 need to rewatch it. It's been years, but I think it's really gross. It's just not good. It's like, like, you know, gay people, like, uh, they're crazy and they, they just want to kill and, and kill, you know, and fuck kids and stuff. It's like, whoa, you know what I mean? And Vanishing Point had like, uh, oh, it's gay people. Oh, right. Of course, they have guns and they're robbing people. So um, I think that they're, they're just expecting, they just need to hear there's a Hollywood film by the Exorcist guy, the Exorcist guy, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, and it's set in leather bars and it's yeah. set in leather bars. So Exorcist guy is bringing a camera to, to the leather bars in our community. <laughs> and it's like, oh, Christ. Like, they just made an assumption. Right. And why shouldn't they? Because of the precedent. Right. You know, because, because by the way, the protesting movie is being filmed. Right. <laughs> so right. they haven't, of course they couldn't have seen Cruising. Nobody's involved. Yeah, right. Even the aftermath, I think, uh, you know, the fact that, because I don't think the movie made, did very well. And I think the controversy didn't, didn't just end upon its release, I don't think, either. It's only been kind of reassessed like in the last like 20 years or so right but i think the fact that it's kind of confusing and ambiguous as a film probably didn't help either because you're not quite sure what the take you know i could see audiences going not quite sure what he's trying to say you know which is like something i really like about the movie but i could see people going to that and being like and feeling like uh not quite sure because it doesn't doesn't hold your hand tell you what it, it all means, or no. it might mean nothing to actually, you know. But that um, could dovetail into some of Tom's <laughs> issues with cruising, you know. Uh, maybe. Well, we spent uh, thirty minutes talking about the controversy. Let's talk about the uh, the movie, Film. you know. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. Let's just talk about the movie just for a little bit, and, and then we'll get to that stuff. Um, uh, I, do, do you guys want to just t- like, for me, uh, let's talk about some of the things I love about this movie, just broadly. I, I love the fucking cold pacing of this movie. I love that. I love the restrained performances of the movie. I think that works really well. The flatness of that. Um, <clears throat> the camera technique of the movie in general, I'm just listing off a couple things. Uh, I, I really love how it, uh, flat <laughs> it seems to, but also that monochromatic look, the, the, the blues and how they play against the Blue. black yeah. is just <laughs> yeah, fucking great, great, man. And it's just a beautiful how, film. Yeah, it's very stripped down. And, 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 I, I, and again, I say, in, in another director's hands, uh, just imagine uh, what they would have done in terms of exploitation with yeah. this material. It's another you know? one of those sweet time capsules of New York during oh. that, like, really well, what's the, what's the saying? <laughs> the saying is uh, eventually every film becomes a documentary. Yeah. Right. You know, some, and some this one said that. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, t- actually, and it is, you, know, you mentioned AIDS, like, AIDS did not exist uh, on the consciousness of people in, right. in 1979 when they shot it. Uh, so, but of course it, it, it put a, a, a chapter end to the period that you see in cruising, a quick right. one, you know? Right. So, uh, and you don't see, you really only see that in gay porn actually, you know, like, uh, 
that's it. That's you know, so yeah. not even yeah. a Hollywood film because even if they had a gay character in an exploitation film, they would never go to the bars. It's no way. Yeah. Um, but uh, I love the editing. Uh, I think it's really cool during the murder scenes. Some of the, mur- the murder scenes are some of the best, like uh, horror movie scenes, for lack of a better term. Agreed. It's like it just it takes everyone to school. Like uh, like I, I know this sounds dumb, but like slasher films or something like that. And it even Should makes, we watch one? Like, uh, sure, yeah, the good idea. Uh, let's get to it. I I I I picked the third one um, mostly because uh, this is the scene where. Uh, the killer uh, kills the guy in the 60 millimeter peep show. Uh, this thing, th- th- this one I love because again, you said the editing is amazing, these subliminal images that are in there, but also um, that it shows 60 millimeter footage of the first murder for a second, which is also really oh, tripped yeah. out. It, you know? it's, it's killer uh, strobic editing. And you know, yeah. we should mention that it's not even a rumor, but it did happen in the theatrical and I think the first VHS and cable airings. Uh, he did insert single frame uh, hardcore gay sex, gay porn, yeah, uh, for yeah. a second, and then and somebody I, somebody slapped his wrist, like, and said, "What are you doing?" Like when they saw it, like maybe the DVD doesn't have it or something. I always loved that do about that. him doing subliminal stuff, like in The Exorcist. Those love like it. the shots. flashing face yeah. in The Exorcist. Amen. Yeah. yeah, let's check it and out. Then, yes, uh, this is the one I thought of too. It's a great example. That's from the first murder. Yeah. Something that's weird, like that guy, apparently that guy is the actor that walks into the booth, too. You know, the, the first guy is murdered. Hang on, hang on to that for a minute. Bloody screen. You made me oh. do that. Oh, man, and the creepy. What creepy is art. that? Man, like, yeah. That. <laughs> what is and I gotta um, say, just uh, very briefly, that's almost the most 70s moment ever in that um, 70s film because it's um, a really graphic depiction of a very, very intense moment, you know, and, uh, and, he, and he goes to the hilt. Like, I guess all I'm saying is uh, no one went back to that vibe uh, ever. Right. right. <laughs> like, that only could have happened in the 70s, you know, shot in 79. Like, um, it's, uh, it's a grand, grotesque, upsetting you can't camp that up you can't look at that and go like uh oh Friday the 13th you know beheading or whatever that's just like grim and shocking but it's also has these great cinematic flourishes only in the 70s let's uh awesome. let's we, we have a lot to get to so let's just look at a couple other scenes real fast and then i do want to talk about the the ending um let's let's I, just I talk to talk about the two, the things i like either by the way oh okay please do so what well, what well, well, two things that really stand out. The uh, the music is so cool in this movie. Like almost, I love the music and the soundtrack and that story as much as the movie. That uh, he originally wanted the the uh, you know he like, freaking went to the. I, I noticed this early on when I first saw the movie. I was like looking at the uh, gay bar footage and thinking like that is not the kind of music they listen to because it's so kind of scary. The music in the in the bars is very scary and menacing. Like scary biker. I knew right away. Bar. I was like, that, I knew they were listening to like disco and stuff that was more upbeat. So I I, I that always I always clocked that that was intentional to get to like get rid of the happy music and get in this sort of menacing music. And you know, I think he originally well he originally wanted to get the the germs to score the whole thing, and they recorded a whole album of material for it. And I guess I'd forgotten this, but Tom like he pointed out there's like there is a germ song like left in there, lion's share. And um, song lion share is is yeah. in there, yeah. Which is so, drink. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, like you said, uh, Darby Crash. Uh, what we were talking just before this that he must have died like right after this after this movie came out, like just a couple within a couple months of the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the rest of the the rest of the soundtrack that's on there too is just so menacing and scary. The um, you know mutiny lump that song is so yeah. scary and like yeah. like dark scary disco music dark disco yeah yeah well you know what um, you know it was big um you were saying uh, disco but it wasn't always in those kind of scenes i mean those kinds of environments at the time it wasn't um happy disco you know it wasn't like uh you make me feel it was more like um you know what the, the totemic song and this, more importantly the sound of a bar like that would have been would be i feel love like it's very marauder mm-hmm. it's very poppers and getting like 
like oscillating or pitching you know and that was the big thing and but it, but i can yeah. tell you it wasn't the germs he did take artistic license with that you know cool idea though. um and then uh, another note in the sound that the sound effects in this movie are really cool too and like yeah. i think that's another thing that we always bring up on the podcast that like we love movies that treat the sound as like a creative tool too and i saw an interview yeah. Freakin's talking about it, saying that, you know, I, I looked at the soundtrack as just as important as the photography, and it needs to do more than just be the sound. But you really see that in this movie, like, there's, like, a part where two songs are playing at once, you know, <laughs> like, uh, which is amazing. And there's another part where um, Pacino's, like, his wife's, like, or girlfriend's, like, going down on him and something, and it starts playing the music from the leather bar, like, in his head, mm-hmm. so you know yeah, what yeah. he's thinking about, you know? It's a great. Nice and, one, yeah. Yeah, um... The, but just to yeah, go and with, just the sound um, of like the leather too, you know, it's like yeah. you hear all the crunchy leather and stuff, and there's a lot going well, he, on with the sound. It's very cool. He went ham on uh, the soundtrack of The Exorcist as well. So if I can just interject, almost just a statement, and then we'll move on. Is I'm totally co-signing with you, uh, Marcus, on that. Uh, one thing, and, and also with you, you were saying like he's really into research, Evan. Mm-hmm. The the one I really like about him is he makes good choices. Oh yeah, and and choices really matter to him. And I'll just give you the one example where. Uh, Lalo Schifrin submitted um, uh, the soundtrack to The Exorcist, and he like threw it across the room. He said, "It sounds like fucking marimba music," you know. And then, and then, no, but listen to this. No, check this out though. This is the guy. The guy has a great um, eye. Has great eyes and ears. Oh yeah. So to speak to what you think about the soundtrack, uh, Tubular Bells, the theme of The Exorcist. Warner Brothers gave him and said, like, "Oh, here's all our new releases because you've seen Lost. Can we pick a fucking score to The Exorcist now?" And he and he just had like a stack from Warner Brothers of new releases and he went no 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 extra no absolutely not what and then boom tubular bells album had just come out and he went yes and it doesn't seem no one would have no one would have suggested tubular bells to him but god it's perfect and it it is horror you know so just to say that he makes he makes such great choices and it's on exhibit again I'm done in Christmas yeah Let's um, just because I, I really want to talk about it, make sure we give it a, a little bit of time. Is I do want to talk about the ambiguity of the film at the end. So maybe we'll just get into this now, and then we'll get all the rest of it in afterwards. Let's start by talking about. So once in the film, towards the end, when you think Al Pacino has solved the crime, murderer is caught. Um, uh, there's this really sad coda, which I just want to tee up and and and, and play. It's a really I upsetting. It. Yeah, it's a really upsetting moment here where. You know, uh, he goes into Paul Servino's character, basically, you know, working for the police, goes in to find Teddy, the innocent neighbor to Al Pacino in this movie, has also been killed now, even after they've caught the supposed killer, which is right. which is the disorienting. Killer, the quote-unquote yeah. killer is in jail, and we see this really just nice guy. It's, it's just such a bad vibe. Again, in the 70s. Totally. And one thing I heard about Paul Servino uh, with this role, too, is Freakin just directed him and said, just I, I, you need to find the pit of sadness in your character in every shot you're in. And he really does. He has the he has the look of sadness like nobody else. He nails it in this movie. Hang, hang dog. Hang dog. But um, <clears throat> so let's just talk about this, because this is Marcus. You almost you, you almost buried my lead. So here it is. So with Teddy's death. OK. Uh, one of the things that's not really dis- t- discuss at all about this movie, which I think is unbelievably fucking cool. And uh, so a lot of people talk about the ending being disorienting. I don't get it. What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, the, the three main murder scenes in the film, right? Um, they all mixed up the casting for those scenes, okay? So the same, sometimes you have the person who's a victim in one scene actually in the other murder scene is playing the killer and vice versa. They, they, yeah. they interchanged the casting of all of things. So it's a super trippy, fucked up idea. But it also yeah. really works kind of thematically for the movie because if this movie is just, you know, all just about, ah, who's the killer? You know, it's kind of like not really as, that's just very base, you know, very basic. You know, so it's, it's more about thematically, obviously this movie has a lot of themes of identity. You know, I think that's what the biggest theme of this whole movie is. And you see it with Pacino at the end of the movie when, you know, he's... You know where is he at with this, right? Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that's that's uh, totally amazing is that the killer's voice. So it's even though it's played by three different people in the three different murder scenes, all the killer's 
voice, his his actual voice has been overdubbed by somebody else who's not on Just screen, which is total nightmare, nightmare vibes. But get this, the oh, actor who voiced the killer is actually the actor that played Stuart, who is the guy that gets apprehended for these crimes at the end. It's actually his dad is the guy who plays the voice you know of the killer in the really? movie, which is the creepiest voice ever. But it's it's on brand because yes. Stuart's, Stuart's main motive for killing is the repression and disapproval of his father. Sure. Um, right. But it, to me, it's like, it's so confusing in the end because it's supposed to be confusing. And it's like, think, oh, yeah. put on your sledgehammer you know, goggles here for a minute. In the idea that the killer in this movie is, uh, it's like this ephemeral, interchangeable uh, killer, yeah. which is more darker and more mysterious to me, like a shape-shifting, um, like uh, like omnipotent evil and a more indescribable yeah. force. Yeah. It's like a you dark know? cloud has landed in, on top of uh, right. Christopher Yeah, Street. I always thought it was more of a, when the very first time I watched it, and it was so confused, and I loved it. I loved how confused I was, honestly. <clears throat> um, I felt like it was like Mulholland Drive or something, where I was just like, Did, yeah, I didn't get totally. it. Or, um, I, always, I thought it was sort of like a more of a demonic possession or like supernatural right. type thing, like that one guy is passing it to the next guy is passing it to the next guy, which is weirdly has some sort of like, I mean, like you said, AIDS wasn't a thing yet. I was going like, to say like that was, yeah, you know, um, but then it is kind of mixed up too. It's not just as simple as like one guy passing it to the next guy. Cause like another, one of the guys that's dead comes back for a second or something, you know, like you see, and it's very confusing. Um, but there's that part where, like, there's two things backing that up. Uh, when they first ask the guys, like, where are you from? The very first killer gets asked, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Mars or something like that. And then later on in Stuart's diary to his, or his letter to his dad, it says something about, like, in the park I saw a black shape in the tree. It was dripping right. down like tar with a glowing red Right. glowing red center father i wanted to show it to you you know right. and right. it's like so there's some sort of weird like almost like a venom spider-man <laughs> carnage kind of like yeah you know possession type thing going on i don't know right. it's not it's, it's not explicit though so it's just kind it's of not like in your imagination and, you know? right it's to me it's much more symbolic uh where the theme yeah. is explored in that way uh what's happening in this community more so than uh, who done it you know um and sure. you, you and, and you talked about the, the possession, how it's passed around to others. I mean, it is kind of in that ending moment, that really creepy ending moment with uh, Al Pacino shaving where he then stares into the mm -hmm. camera lens. And then it cuts to Karen, Karen Allen putting on the clothes the killer had on, I'm pretty sure, in the first kill scene, you know? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, who knows how much of this is intentional? And, you know, who knows how much of this is just like, you know... The, the, the net result of this, but like to me, it's it kind of goes back to the source material. You talk about that guy behind bars who told Friedkin, he's like, they tried to pin all this shit on me, you know, and it's like, it is this kind of like Lynchian almost, I don't know, immaterial, omnipotent evil that's kind of just in this, like, the, yeah, like you said, like, it's like abstracted. A, it's a, abstracted. It's abstracted. Yeah. 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 I, I, I which, kinda... is, which is so unlike him in a way. I mean, The Exorcist is, is fantastical, obviously, because of just the topic, you know. But um, he doesn't usually do that. Like, even in The Exorcist, it, like, it's grounded. It makes sense. It's happening, you know, at that place and those priests, you know. But this is, uh, this is him doing something pretty different that I don't think he would really return to. it. Yeah. I always had the feeling that it was kind of like it must be accidental, you know, like. Um, and he, I think he might have backed into that because he says something like, uh, uh, you know, 2001 was like. One of the greatest. He said the Reagan quote where he says like that. <laughs> What's that? Wait, what? They what? all they, they all say that about 2001, kind of. He says like two. Uh, Freaking says like 2001 is one of the greatest movies of all time, and it's as ambiguous as fuck. You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but Sounds I do like think I, mean, I I kind of do have that. My gut is that like maybe the the film got so interrupted they got you know when they're shooting it he got a little spooked he had to cut a bunch oh. of stuff out. Interesting. And Marcus, they just you sort say of that. like and they just sort of like. I think maybe he sort of ended up having to back into it being ambiguous and seeing like maybe it'll work. You know, I think Marcus, I agree with you. I think I think there's a there's at least a portion of that component that landed in the final product. That's my theory. It feels like uh, a, a director sort of painting themselves in the corner because um, obviously he did, whatever source material he, he diverted from that majorly. I'm sure probably during the shoot. I feel like uh, the film got away from him a little bit. I do have some criticisms, and I think I'll just keep it quick, but I think it's related to what you're saying, Marcus. Um, it's not all of it, but 
but I think it's a little a bit of a troubled film, not just the uh, the shoot, but um, uh, Freakin's articulation, what he's trying to say, because I think there's there's no center to the film for me. And uh, I think that I, I kind of I, I, I wobble a little bit in my attention because I'm not it's not a building and not a whodunit thing. I don't care about that. But it, but I, I do. It strays a bit and I stray a bit. And but I think the critical problem is I, I'm not really always liking Pacino's performance. And I feel that the film should have been the center of the film should have been the character that Pacino's portraying. And I feel I look in his eyes. So we've all seen him act many times. He looks like he's kind of lost and it looks like he doesn't really know what the center of the film is or his character. And I think he underperforms, not in this Michael Corleone way that he does masterfully in like Godfather 2, but um, he actually just looks a little bit like a lost actor. And that makes me kind of um, lose my grounding in my, in my engagement in the film. So I felt that way too uh, before rewatching it. And I do think revisiting the movie like I do appreciate his performance more and more every time I do see it, because I do think that there is an innocence with him going into this movie where he is lost. And I do think the lostness. You mean the works. actor, Pacino? I do. Yeah. I think that there's yeah, okay. a lostness in his performance that really works. Like we should show the scene where he's, you know, popping off on poppers, you know, which I think is very you awkward. You know, like here, let's just look at it really quick. So it's, uh, uh, that's campy. Like, I've I've played that for people, and it just makes them crack up. You know, of course. It's funny, as soon as as soon as he huffs, the lights come on. I thought that was like an intentional moment. You know, oh my like, God, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> well, it's it's the very first time the rag goes in his mouth. The lights come on. It's oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So here's my take on this. Yeah. Is it um, ether or is it is it poppers or is it ether? I think it's poppers. I think ether would just pass you out, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Poppers probably. M- my whole thing is that he's very awkward, you know, in that first big chunk of the movie, right? Like he's a fish out of water. He doesn't quite know how to get it. He the there character, yeah. The char- the character, but I I do think it works in the performance. I think I'm 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 sensing it more in the performance. And then I think as he starts to gain more confidence and maybe. This is was playing into the method of it all, you know, because uh, he is a method actor. Is like um, when he's getting more comfortable with it. That last scene where he's cruising in the in in, in Central Park and you know gets the gets the killer you know uh, off to the side and is yeah. like, okay, so what are we doing? Lips a hips here? What are we doing? You know, and he's really much more you know confident. Like I, I got to be somewhere. Are we gonna do this or what? He's, he's, he's got on a tr- roll. But I think yeah. you know what I think. But my theory. I understand the ramp up of a method actor, but um, I, it feels to me because that's a good call. I, I remember that scene where it's like, whoa, Pacino lights up like a light bulb right here. And I think for me, it's like he has a, a handle on the material there where he's feeling more lost. I think his uh, character is, too, though. Like, I really do. Yeah, I don't like, know. I, no, I, 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 I only disagree because I do think like that scene where after the interrogation scene, where he's being, you know, interrogated, and that, you know, when the when the six foot five black guy walks in, we and have to show that. We will, we will show it. But the one go thing ahead, I will ahead. say about that is, uh, you know, after that scene when he has that very meaningful dialogue sequence with Paul Servino, and and he's just like, man, like, you know, I, I didn't get this job, you know, just to just, just to rag on some innocent gay guy, you know, I just think his delivery in Restrained as it is in this movie, I think works. I really do. He does have a sense of being a fish out of water, and it's awkward. It's very awkward. It's awkward for us to watch Al Pacino doing this. But I think if you can dissociate yourself from what you think of Pacino, I think it does kind of work. Because I know freaking wanted Richard Gere, which I don't think would have worked at fucking all, because he's too much of a fucking pretty boy, and it just wouldn't have worked. There's no oh, way. Oh, I, 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 I beg to differ, actually. I, I don't think, think it would have worked. Uh, well, okay, he, you know, I could see him going right from, um, uh, you know, looking for Mr. Goodbar, uh, into this film, you know, like, and he has a lot of appeal because one of the things that throws me off about Pacino is he doesn't look very um, hunky and hot. Like he looks like not just that he's short, you know, like Pacino's a good looking guy, of course, but like he looks um, not American Gigolo. <laughs> I don't think well, that no, would work. It's, it's, not, it's not that film. I, I think it. I, I know what you're saying too, but I think it would it would work better for me because. He would blend in better. There's something. It's something about Pacino's the way Pacino's got like. Carry. Pacino's got the street. He's got like the street 
hardness in him that I think yeah, is I'm there. Not, it's it's not it's not it's not going over for me. Uh, it's it, I, I'm left wanting by that performance. So that's that's me. Whatever. Freakin um, does seem to kind of shit on his performance a little bit too. These days. he does. Yeah. No, he's come that's around. That's legacy. Yeah. Yeah, but long time. So anyway, we've got uh, we've got some clips. Um, maybe let's have a little fun, <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, and there's a great, there's a classic scene. Everybody's favorite scene. That's right? blown all of our minds when we've seen this film, and uh, as it should. And it actually is about a mind being blown. So uh, let's maybe I, explain it on the other side. I uh, put yeah. them both together. I, I put them both together okay. because it has a good intro. Yeah. <laughs> Right. What's wrong with him? That's bullshit. Is that right? I told you it was my room. That's all I'm going to tell you. This was my introduction to this film. Me too. WTF. Ah! What the hell was that? <laughs> and then here's the second one. Right. <laughs> classic who indeed classic right, out of context explain, who, who wants to explain uh why that scene exists well it it it, it, it exists again going back to my my man randy jurgensen uh would uh, right. talk talked about how this was a real tactic um that was employed by by cops that they during That's certain amazing. interrogations they would they would yeah have something as wild as that you know happen in an interrogation so a, a perpetrator would lose credibility when trying to complain about detectives' behavior, like you know. No, I'm and, telling you, he was huge, and he was naked, he had a jock strap, and a cowboy hat. What the hell? What's yeah. the problem? You know, like that happened. Yeah. Like, oh, shut the fuck up. Like, like, maybe they had like a clown, you know, with like yeah. pants, you right? Know, it's, like punching it's, shit out of somebody. It's insane. You know? It's um, brilliant. And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. Like, it is sourced by a cop because you can't make that up. You can't screenwriter and you can't imagine it happening and you wouldn't have known about it. It's an inside detail and it's that's great. Let me let me uh, let me hit you with the things that I bump up with on on cruising. It's a short list. But to me, I think Karen Arthur's character is a big miss opportunity. Karen Allen. Allen. Uh, Sorry, Karen Allen. Karen Arthur, right for Richard Beck director. (laughs) Karen Allen is um, is, uh, you know, she's awesome. But I think her character is a big miss opportunity because She's really nothing yeah. in this movie, like ac- absolute stone cold nothing in this movie. And she, um, she, you know, like I, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, but maybe, you know, in terms of you know, looking at the deep cover aspect of Pacino's character as it's having the effect on him, maybe utilizing her character more in a way to bring that through a little bit, uh, where maybe I could almost see like pulling a, something out of straight time, like a more of a Teresa Russell and Dustin Hoffman type moment or more moments between them that could have articulated that a little, little further. Um, but I, I think that that could... Classic, not, classic yeah. underwritten female character. Of course, yeah. I think uh, that, that's kind of my main, you know, real gripe with the film. I, I, it's something that just sticks out to me as kind of like superfluous, you know? Uh, the only female in the whole film, and she's pretty flimsy, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, just underwritten. Yeah. And it happened. There's, there's plenty of scenes, though. That's the thing. And that's when I start. I just lose focus sometimes. Like the film, t- I get out of the film's rhythm and, and it should have momentum. And all I'm saying is this could have been a, an out of the park classic for, you know, the kid here, just my personal subjective opinion. But it's not, you know, it's not uh, like in, in one of his best. It, it has it has more flaws than a lot of classics, but it could have been a real classic. It has a lot of components for it. Everybody, I, I yeah. could see Pacino going. I wouldn't mind. I would not mind seeing someone else cast in the lead. Everybody loves the, the leather scenes, and they're like the great focal point of the movie. They're awesome, amazing. But it is it is sort of unusual that you spend you go back to that same bar like four or five times in the movie, and that is pretty unusual yeah. for a film to spend that much time in one location. You know. Well. Uh, uh, something that's very akin to the six foot five uh, black man slapping sequence in real life is, you know, uh, William Friedkin was known for pulling a lot of uh, weird, uh, pulling things over on MPAA people or just, you know, different hacks to get mis- movies made. And right. And one of them is that he, sh- he was a he- real prick. He <laughs> he did, and if, if we do French Connection, if we do that for the show, uh, there's a million of those examples of the different the different you know things he he did in order to get his way. But one thing with this film is he knew the MPAA was going to be a problem, so he actually shot 
he had a, his first cut of his uh, of uh, of cruising had 40 more minutes of the leather bar stuff in there that he knew that he had no intention of actually keeping in because he just gave them you know the bait and switch of okay just uh, tell me to cut all this stuff and we're good and then he gets net film that he wanted um it's a classic cla trick yeah classic <laughs> great 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 thing there but um i don't know i, I was just going to say that um uh where what, what were we talking about we only got two minutes left um but i don't know i anything else you guys want to get you, you just you articulated your dings uh, against oh. the film uh, marcus do you have a ding oh, or two well, that oh okay sorry do you go ahead evan oh. take it away you, i've dinged it a little bit so okay go for it yeah the, the only thing i was just going to say is like you know one i think the, the movie to me is really about like identity and we did talk about that with uh, al pacino's character and the passing of the of the clothes um, and, and, and I do think you talked about the leather bar and going back into it in this movie. I kind of do think that it is the safe zone of this movie in some you know, weird way. And I think they were in, in the community because it's a place that people could drop out of their square life and, you know, and, 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 and play with their identities, become something else. It's dress play. up as a cop. Yeah, yeah dress up as a yeah. cop. And, you know, um, and, and for Al's character, you know, Steve, uh, you know, it's, it's something for him where his eyes really open up and he really is seeing that oh my God, well, you know, this is a whole other realm of existence and he can never go back. And I think it's similar to the themes of another great film we should cover on this channel, Deep Cover, I think, you know, is also that. But, um, on the list, but, yeah. <clears throat> but I think that the, the film, for me, what knocks it out of the park is that intangible fear that is haunting this whole film. There's an indescribable character that enters in one of the leather bars, is seen, sorry, seen exiting one of the leather bars who's yeah, nobody yeah. we know and then walks in back into it at the end, you know, and that's kind of a weird mystery in and of itself. Yeah. You know, right, so right, I, right. I just love that sort of high concept um, thing with this film. Uh, and, and that to me is what kind of transcends it. Like, I don't really mind yeah. that there are some rough edges to this movie because I love quite the like experience, it. the whole experience of it. I think I wish I could watch it again for the first time because I loved how disoriented I felt the first time afterwards and just being like, what was that? You know, yeah. I, I think that's yeah. a more do you want? special. It's special. It's a special experience as a movie. The first time you watch it, it is. It's, it's a one of a kind for sure. For a few reasons, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, f fascinating movie. M more times you watch it, you know, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll notice something different. And uh, so, yeah. Anyway, there you go. One fucking hour. Barely did it on uh, cruising. I definitely could have gone on and on and on and been sprayed bottled to uh, infinity. But um, I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, self-spray. Self-spray time. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, guys, we didn't really, I mean, we, we do have next week's, like, solidified, right? I mean, we can announce this. Yeah, right? we have two, we have two grim bummer movies, uh, in a row here. <laughs> like, and this, and I will, you know what I'll say is this is, well, we're going to get into it, but like, that's a great achievement. Our next film, um, next week, um, it's, uh, it's fun. Just immediately I started thinking about how the film succeeds because it, it, I think it knew what it wanted to do this next film. And it and it is it really succeeded in, a, in, a, in executing, and I think the cruising wasn't really sure-footed in what it quite wanted to get done. But the next one is also by an incredible director. You know, we're going from one great director to another. Um, you want to spill? Yeah, beans? I think this will be the perfect Valentine's Day uh, episode for one fucking hour. Uh, we're going to be looking at. <laughs> another one, another uh, director double dip. Uh, we did his Art film. Beeps. We, yeah, no. <laughs> With Andy Kaufman. <laughs> no, oh, we're we not. Oh, no, sorry. no, no. We did all that jazz, and now uh, next week we'll be looking at Bob Fosse's Star Eighty um, uh, about the Dude, based on the murder of Star Eighty, Dorothy, Dorothy Stratton. Unbelievable film. Um, Editing heaven. Yeah, like for starters. And one of the great performances. See, sorry, I'm really unfairly comparing Cruising to Star 80, but like the performance, uh, you know, is, is Paul Schneider. That is a powerhouse, you know? I can't wait. A masterclass. It's, it's just, it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, it's the first film about the 70s, two years after the 70s ended, and I love that. I mean, there's going to be so much fun, interesting stuff to talk about. And it's an enormous bummer. And I've seen people walk out of the room. You know, when I'm watching it, they just, oh, yeah. It's very, it's really upsetting. And Truly. it's a true story. Yes, it is. And it's a, it, it is a grim film, but true it's a true story. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a uh, underappreciated movie, uh, I think, across the board. I think um, so. 
Yeah, let's let's try is. to pump it up. You know, okay. Uh, it's by, by one of the math. He's one. He didn't make a lot of movies, but um, every one of his movies is awesome. You know. Yeah. Like uh, agreed. Um, like uh, it's just like I mean, again, you make a lot more movies, you probably you know have some clunkers, but that guy was as about as good as anyone ever. Bob Fosse, and and he didn't start as a director. You know, like he's he's this mm-hmm. other thing he was a choreographer you know mm-hmm. and uh i'm just so impressed and i, I just carve me out some time to talk about the editing oh cool. oh the editing and this and the sound and the Got performances it. there's a lot to get into it kind of ticks all the check marks of the things we like to talk about uh with uh, great movies here on, on one fucking hour so exactly. um so all right next so next week star 80 one fucking hour on star 80 and uh Guys, uh, the show wouldn't be complete without your moment of zen, which I'm going to be playing right after this. But um, we will catch you again (laughs) next week. And have a great rest of your weekend, everybody. And see you later. All right. Bye-bye. This Thursday at 9, watch for the SCTV premiere of the Cruising Gourmet. Okay, how you doing? Uh, today, the gourmet is going to teach you how to stuff a turkey, okay? Uh, what you do, first of all, is uh, tenderize it. What is? <laughs> Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Oh.